everyone, and welcome to Sinful Thayer's Horror Menagerie. I'm your host, Sarah Sin, tackling horror movies, peeling back the layers, and taking a deeper dive into them. Again, on the show, I don't just discuss my love of horror movies. I like to bring in the aspect and perspective of horror and history, how horror movies tend to reflect society's fears. And since I am a psychology major, I like to bring this aspect and perspective in as well, and see how the horror movie I'm focusing on reflects psychology and mental health in any way. So, happy month of Halloween, everyone! Yes, October 1st is the first day of Halloween, in my opinion. And as you all know, new month means new theme. With this month's theme being, Old MacDonald had a farm, D-E-A-D, dead. (laughs) Where I will be focusing on farm-themed horror movies. And this doesn't mean it has to be set specifically on a farm or in a barn. But basically, anything that has to be... It has to do with a farm, like farm-related. So it can be scarecrows, farmhouses, corn, cows, etc. Anything that has to do with farming and farms and a barn fits this month's theme. So I will also apologize right now. I am completely stuffed up. My allergies are so bad that I have been coughing nonstop. My nose is stuffy and runny. And I've been coughing so much that like my throat is starting to hurt. So I apologize if I sound hoarse or if I'm taking a lot more breaths this episode, but like my allergies are literally killing me. So I'm sorry. I apologize. But moving on, October is my favorite month within my favorite season. So not only does October have Halloween, which is my favorite holiday, but my daughter's birthday and my birthday are in October as well. Um, In fact, some of you probably know this. Not everyone does. But my daughter's birthday is actually the day before mine. So I'm October 25th. She's October 24th. So, And we're only a week before Halloween. So it's like perfect. It's like birthday, birthday, Halloween. So October is my favorite month. It's a month to celebrate many, many things. Not only Halloween, but our birthdays. It also happens to be like my favorite season. So I will say this year's birthday is not what I'm looking forward to. I'm going to be 40. And I just feel like I'm not anywhere near where I wanted to be when I was 40. Um, Like looking back, I'm like, wow, I don't think I've achieved anything I wanted to do or be by the time I was 40. So it's kind of depressing in a way. So like, I'm really, I have this like huge fear of turning 40. Like it's so bad that like every night when I go to bed, I cry because I'm like, as soon as I wake up, I'm a day closer to 40. It's like every single day that creeps by, I'm closer and closer to turning 40. And I know a lot of people are like, oh, 40 was a great year. 40 is this, da-da-da-da-da. That's great. I'm having a hard time turning 40. And that's the problem, is that every day is closer and closer to me turning 40. And I'm getting like more and more depressed about it because I haven't done anything I feel like I should have done by the time I was 40. So As much as I love October, as much as I love, you know, Halloween and birthdays, I'm dreading this year's birthday. And I just, I don't even think I'm going to celebrate. Like, I even asked my job, like, please don't celebrate my birthday because we celebrate everyone's birthday. We have cards and food and stuff. And I said, I really don't want anyone celebrating. Everyone's like, oh, are you going to go do something? I said, absolutely not. I don't want to do anything. Like, I just, I want to forget that my birthday exists this year because I'm turning 40. Not that it's going to change anything. Like I know that, like I know the very next day it's like, shit, I'm 40. But I just, I don't know, just as of right now, I just, I can't move past that I haven't done anything. So this year's birthday is not much to look forward to for me. Um, But of course my daughter's, yes, I'm excited. She's going to be seven. 
Um, we're going to Monster Mania in November for it. She wants to go to this, like, big old trampoline place for, like, her birthday. And I said, yeah, we could take, like, a couple of friends there and just do something small. And then Monster Mania is, like, your big present. So this month has a lot to celebrate, just not my birthday because I don't want to be 40. <laughs> so anyways, with all that said, we're going to move on to the first movie for the theme of Old MacDonald Had a Farm, D-E-A-D Dead, with 1984's Children of the Corn. Starring Peter Horton as Bert, Linda Hamilton as Vicky, R.G. Armstrong as Dale, I hope I said that right, John Franklin as Isaac, Courtney Gaines as Malachi, Robbie Kiger as Job, Anne-Marie McEvoy as Sarah, Julie Madalena as Rachel. So for horror history, I definitely think this has a lot, I mean, it basically revolves around a religious cult, so it's definitely reflecting on religious cults, like like ex how extreme religion can get. I think it also reflects on like fear of having children, like all the questions we ask as parents. Um, it definitely touches a little bit on the whole aspect of bullying, specifically with our character of Malachi, which I will try to get into later on. But I think it's definitely reflecting on bullying. Also, it reflects on the whole idea, like if you don't listen, this is what's going to happen to you. You know, the fiery pits of hell, like putting the fear of God in people. Psychology and mental health, we got manipulation, pride, toxic relationships, death, adolescent stage of life, childhood, religious symbolism and metaphors, impulsiveness, childlike innocence, lack of empathy, sociopathic tendencies, and a superiority complex. So what is this movie about? Bert and Vicky are headed across the U.S., headed to Seattle to start a new life as Bert starts his new career as a doctor. But when they accidentally hit a kid whom they realize had his throat cut before he stepped onto the road, they must take a detour to Gatlin, Nebraska. Vicky and Bert soon realize something isn't right in Gatlin. There's no adults. Only children and teenagers roam the streets, and they worship a strange deity only referred to as he who walks behind the rose. Will Vicky and Bert make it out alive, or will they become the next sacrifice to he who walks behind the rose? Moving on to the subgenre. So at first, this movie was kind of hard for me to kind of place into a subgenre because the opening scene actually plays out like your typical slasher flick. But at the same time, it definitely has elements of like possession horror, which deals with demons and the devil and supernatural horror because this town itself has something like supernatural going on. But after looking through like my essay that I wrote and researching a little bit more, I feel like this movie definitely falls under a subgenre that was not really coined um, before I wrote my essay, no, the original paper that I uh, kind of refer back to, but it's definitely a subgenre that's been around for a, a long time, folk horror. So in a way, it's like a seemingly new, it's a new term for this subgenre. And again, it's been around for a very long time. I would say even as far back as 1973's The Wicker Man. Anyways, I'm going to go over the definition of folk horror. Folk horror. This is the subgenre that usually takes place in isolated rural communities away from the safety of urban life. These movies typically involve religious cults who believe in old traditions and superstitions. The villain or villains in these movies are usually manipulative, driven by their religious beliefs, claiming their god or deity to be the one true being, their word being the absolute truth. This subgenre likes to play on fears of isolation, paranoia, and having no way of escaping the dread of imminent death that looms over. So first, I'd like to go over like the religious aspect of the movie, 
because religion plays a big part in this movie, um, from Isaac to he who walks behind the rose to the believers and the non-believers. This movie is about religious cults and how they can manipulate people into believing whatever they want by basically claiming to be a prophet of the Lord. So there are a few things I kind of want to go over. So again, I'm just going to go over a few scenes and explain a little more in detail like I usually do. So the movie actually opens with a bang. Like it's definitely, I would say, one of the best openings in a horror movie. It is really, really creepy and it really gets under your skin. So, and the whole thing is narrated by our character, Job. It was about three years ago. I was the only kid in church that day. The others were with Isaac out in the cornfield. I didn't get to go because dad didn't like Isaac. He was pretty smart, my dad. After church, we went to Hanson's, just like always. Sarah was homesick with mom. She'd come down with a fever real sudden. Dad was worried, so he went to call mom first thing. That's when I saw Malachi and the others. I guess their meeting with Isaac was over. They were acting really creepy. And then we see, like, Isaac looking in the window of the diner. He kind of nods to Malachi, who's actually at the pinball machine. Another child locks the door. There's some elderly people drinking coffee, and they start to choke, then they die. And then the children just start to massacre all the adults at the cafe using a variety of weapons. And then Job goes on. It happened everywhere in Gatlin that day. That's when Sarah started drawing these pictures. So... We know that um, the child looking in the window, we later find out is Isaac, but what we do know is just from this opening scene that the child staring in the diner window is the one who orchestrated this whole thing, like the whole thing of like killing the adults. We later find this to be true when Bert is running from a group of children and Job has followed him and then trying to help um, Bert to safety. Job, careful. Hey, don't be a scaredy cat. Come on. It's only me and Sarah. Bert. Sarah? Job. Yeah, my sister. Isn't this neat? My dad built it for when the communists launched the first strike. Bert. I don't think it's communists you have to worry about, Job. Job. Don't worry. Nobody knows about this place. It's secret. Bert. Those guys friends of yours? Job. No way. They listen to Isaac and Malachi. Bert. Who's Isaac and Malachi? Job. Isaac started the whole thing. If he hadn't come, this never would have happened. But when he was young, he was a preacher, so everybody believed him. They thought he had great spirit. I thought he was weird. Huh, Sarah? So then, towards the end of the movie, Bert even kind of confronts the whole group of children, asking, like, why they decided to follow Isaac. Like, why are you following Isaac so blindly? Bert. Vicky, get out of here. Was this how it was with your parents? Was it? Just because some self-proclaimed holy man said this is what God commands? What kind of God tells his children to kill their parents, huh? Answer me that, buddy. Did you hear that before Isaac? Did you? I can't believe you're this blind. Maybe you've been listening to these holy rollers so long, it's all starting to sound the same. Well, it's not. Any religion without love and compassion is false. It's a lie. So, backtracking really quick. We find out that three years ago, he who walks behind the rose made himself known to Isaac, who believed basically that he was a, you know, believed that he who walks behind the rose is some kind of God. Um, he who walks behind the rose speaks to Isaac and he, quote, acts according to his will. Isaac convinces the other children to murder all the adults in Gatlin because this is what he wants. He meaning he who walks behind the rose. And then on your 19th birthday, 
you sacrifice yourself to this god or deity. All this came from Isaac. And Isaac kind of uses this whole idea to manipulate the other children, to do his bidding and control them, claiming this to be, you know, he who walks behind the rose will. Like, this is what he wants. And that Isaac speaks for he who walks behind the rose. And what I find interesting is that we never see proof of this God or deity really until the end of the movie. So for most of the movie, you're kind of led to believe that this is all Isaac's doing. You know, he uses this, you know, he who walks behind the rose, claiming him to be real. But you start to think that maybe he's not real. And this is really Isaac's way of kind of restoring order. Like, and he's using this to control and manipulate the children to do what he wants, to do Isaac's bidding. Like, Isaac is the mastermind behind all this, everything, using religion basically as an excuse to commit murder and justify using, like, human sacrifices. So, like I said, we do find out in the end that he who walks behind the rose is real. But before that, you're kind of led to believe that either, one, Isaac's making up he who walks behind the rose and is using this as an excuse, like I said, to control and manipulate the other children to do whatever he wants, he meaning Isaac. Or you're kind of led to believe that Isaac really does believe he's a prophet of God and that he really did hear he who walks behind the rose, but maybe it's all in Isaac's head and maybe it didn't really happen, like kind of idea. Like, I hope that all makes sense. Like up until you find out he who walks behind the rose is real, you're basically led to believe like, is this all in Isaac's head? Does he really believe that he heard he who walks behind the rose? And now he's using religion as a way to control, manipulate the children. Or did Isaac orchestrate all this? as a way to control and manipulate all the children. And as I'm and let's not even think about he who walks behind the rose for just a second. So taking the other aspects I was talking I was just talking about before we find out, you know, Isaac's hearing this in his head and using it as a um, manipulation tool, Isaac, you know, just wants to control and manipulate the children. This basically says that Isaac has a superiority complex and he's basically full of pride. He feels he's in charge and is superior because he speaks for he who walks behind the rose, whether he believes it or not. The whole idea is that Isaac is full of pride, has a superiority complex because he who walks behind the rose only talks to him and no one else, and that Isaac's the one who repeats the words of he who walks behind the rose. So hope that all makes sense. So Again, it's not until well over an hour into the movie that we realize and see that there really is an entity living in the corn. So yes, this entity, deity, or God, whatever, has actually manipulated Isaac to do his bidding, which is to manipulate and control the other children to follow his, quote, rules by using Isaac as a prophet of sorts to get these children to worship him, him being he who walks behind the rose, you know, he says murder for him, you know, all the adults and the outlanders. He wants them to make sacrifices to him by making it a rule that when you turn 19, you're willing to go into the corn and sacrifice yourself to he who walks behind the rose. So I hope this all makes sense. So again, um, in short, you know, before we realize he who walks behind the rose is real, we are led to believe that either A, 
Isaac's making this all up as a way to manipulate and control the children of Gatlin. Um, or B, Isaac truly believes um, he is a prophet of this he who walks behind the rose entity, but still uses it as a way to manipulate and control the children because the truth is Isaac has a superiority complex and is full of pride. But after we um, realize that he who walks behind the rose is real, we realize that he who walks behind the rose has, is the one who actually is controlling and manipulating Isaac to do what he wants him to do, which is to kill all the adults, kill the outlanders as sacrifices, and that when the children turn 19, they have to be sacrificed to he who walks behind the rose. So in the end, it is like a domino effect of he who walks behind the rose um, manipulates and controls Isaac, probably because he knows Isaac in the end has is full of pride and has a superiority complex, so he's easy to manipulate because he's like, hey, guess what? I'm he who walks behind the rose. You're a prophet of God. I'm going to have you speak my words. And, and then in turn, Isaac goes to the children and says, this is what he who walks behind the rose wants, and then manipulates and controls all the children. So I hope that all makes sense. So of course, I'm looking into this and I'm going, so who is he who walks behind the rose? Like, is he a demon? Is he a deity? He's some kind of entity. Is he God? And the truth is, we're never really told who or what he really is. So just for fun, I did a little bit of research on my own, you know, and actually looked up like gods of corn, deities of corn, entities, anything surrounding like being a god or goddess of corn. And first of all, there was a lot more than I expected there to be. So I'm just going to go over uh, a few that I noticed. So so for the Aztecs, there's maize goddess Chicamacotel. I probably said that wrong. Chicamacotel. Goddess of corn and sustenance associated with fertility and agricultural abundance. And this is from the Denver Art Museum. Um, and a female would be sacrificed every year to this god in September. Brooklyn Museum. So for the Mayans, there was Maya maize god Hun Hunapu, god of corn and represents birth, death, and rebirth. This was Delaware Valley University. And then we had, for Romans, there was Ceres. And then the Greek version was Demeter, goddess of harvest and grain, agriculture, and the cycle of life and death, the old project. Pigs were sacrificed to Demeter, and pregnant sows were sacrificed to Ceres. And this is Mythopedia. So these were just a few of the things that I was looking up. There, like I said, there's a lot more, but these are the like the three that really stuck out to me. But none of these deities require multiple sacrifices. And they did not prey on the innocence of children, manipulating them to kill the adults and sacrifice themselves when they turn 19. None of them are associated with manipulating children or multiple sacrifices. So I feel like we're dealing with something much more ancient and evil. So a part of me actually started thinking like, this is either just a regular demon or the devil himself. And I'll explain a little bit more on that in a minute. But it's just something I was thinking about was like, maybe this is just an ancient demon or maybe it's actually Lucifer himself. So I'm not really sure, but I'll talk a little bit about why I think that is that in just a minute. So some of the symbolism and religious metaphors within this movie I actually noticed was actually in the characters, if that makes it sense. So there's a lot of religious symbolism and metaphors going on within this movie, but the one I really picked up on that kind of interested me 
was some of the characters to me can represent people in the Bible. You have Isaac as Jesus, Malachi as Judas, and Job and Sarah as Adam and Eve. So I say that Isaac represents Jesus is because he claims that he speaks for he who walks behind the rose. Jesus was the son of God and went around with his disciples teaching the word of God. And at one point, we actually see Isaac like leading a sermon, which Jesus did with his disciples. Jesus did all the time. He was leading these sermons. And Isaac's doing it with a bunch of children. They're gathered around him almost the same way that Jesus' disciples were always, a gather, were always gathered around Jesus. Isaac, behold, a dream did come to me in the night, and the Lord did show all this to me. Group of children, praise God, praise the Lord. Isaac, a time of tribulation has come. A test is at hand, the final test. Malachi, what has the Lord commanded? Isaac, in the dream, the Lord did come to me, and he was a shape. It was he who walks behind the rose. And I did fall on my knees in terror and hide my eyes, lest the fierceness of his face strike me again. He told me all that has since happened. He said, Joseph has taken his things and fled this happy place, because the worship of me is no more upon him. So take you his life and spill his blood like water upon the earth, but let not the flesh pollute the corn. Cast him instead upon the road. Malachi. And so it was done. Joseph the betrayer was cast out. Isaac. And he who walks behind the rose did say, I will send outlanders amongst you, a man and a woman. And these outlanders will be unbelievers and profaners of the holy. And the man shall sorely test you, for he has great power, even greater than that of the blue man. Group. The blue man, yes, the blue man. Isaac, and just as the blue man was offered up to him, so shall the unbelievers. Malachi, make sacrifice unto him. Bring him the blood of the outlanders. Group, praise God, praise the Lord. So it's just a quick example of like Isaac leading a sermon, which is why I think he represents Jesus, because Jesus was leading a lot of sermons and worship, and his he was constantly surrounded by not only his disciples, but people who believed in him. And I say that Malachi represents Judas because, well, Judas betrays Jesus in the Bible and Isaac is betrayed by Malachi. So Malachi actually ends up getting him like strung up on this like cross made of corn husks. Isaac, we must sacrifice them both tonight. Malachi, Amos will satisfy him. We need the woman. She'll bring the man to us. Isaac, no, he must be taken without her. We cannot remove her from this place. It is holy. Malachi, we'll bring the Lord too by using one. Isaac, do not blaspheme me, Malachi. You know not the laws. He speaks them only to me. Malachi, I think not, Isaac. You are the one who's lost favor with him. He's a God of blood and sacrifice, not ceremonies. Isaac, ah, sacrilege. Down on your knees, heretic. Malachi, shut your mouth, Isaac. You've grown prideful and apart from us. He who walks behind the rose will decide your fate. Isaac, don't just sit there. Seize him. Punish him. Cut him down. I command you. I am the word and the giver of his laws. Disobedience to me is disobedience to him. Do it now or your punishment shall be a thousand times, a thousand deaths, each more horrible than the last. Malachi, they're tired of your talk, Isaac. I've shown them what I can do. Cut the woman down. Put Isaac in her place. We shall see how the Lord favors you. Isaac, no, you dare not to blaspheme me. He will punish you. The God of hell will devour you. 
All of you. No, no, no. And then again, like I said, with that, Malachi has Isaac like put up on this cross um, uh, made of corn to be sacrificed for he who walks behind the rose. Again, betraying Isaac. Malachi betrays Isaac the same way Judas betrays Jesus. And I say that Job and Sarah kind of represent Adam and Eve. It's basically simple. They're both young and naive, as well as leaving, well, escaping Gatlin at the end of the movie, as if being casted out of the Garden of Eden. And this is where I believe that he who walks behind the rose could be the devil or a demon, because the devil is talked about in the Bible, like changing shapes to manipulate others. And he did change shape um, when he like presented himself to Adam and Eve um, in the form of a snake, and he manipulated them to eat the forbidden fruit. So he who walks behind the rose is a wolf in sheep's clothing kind of idea. And like I said, as Adam and Eve were casted out of the Garden of Eden, in the end, Job and Sarah leave Gatlin almost in the same way of being like casted out of Gatlin. And that's why I kind of think that they could represent Adam and Eve because like Adam and, Adam and Eve were young. They were naive. They were e easily manipulated by the devil in the form of a snake to eat the forbidden fruit. Job and Sarah are kind of the same way. They're very young and naive. Um, they weren't easily manipulated by Isaac, but there's still a lot of like similarities between them and Adam and Eve. And like I said, he who walks behind the rose could represent the devil, like a demonic spirit or the devil himself, like claiming to be God, manipulating Isaac into believing he is God, having Isaac spread the word, you know, his word, manipulating the children of Gatlin to kill for him, basically condemning their souls to hell. So Isaac can be seen as Jesus. He's the prophet of God. He's the one leading the sermons the same way Jesus was the son of God and leading sermons, having his disciples follow him. Malachi can be seen as Judas because Judas was Jesus's right-hand man. Malachi is Isaac's right-hand man. And Judas and Malachi both betray people. So Malachi betrays Isaac. Judas betrays Jesus. And then I said Job and Sarah could represent Adam and Eve because Adam and Eve and Job and Sarah are both young, naive. And in the end, they're both kind of casted out of their places of, you know, what they call home. Adam and Eve are casted out of Garden of Eden and Job and Sarah were kind of, you know, casted out of Gatlin as they escape at the end of the movie. And then I think that in the end, he who walks behind the rose is either some kind of demon, demonic spirit, or the devil himself, because he is known to change shapes in order to manipulate others to do his bidding, as he who walks behind the rose has manipulated Isaac and the children of Gatlin to do his bidding. So I hope that all makes sense. Okay, so next I'd like to do a little bit of like a compare and contrast, you know, similarities and differences between the book and the movie. So first of all, you have to remember that the story itself by Stephen King is a short story. It's only about 30 pages long and is part of his Night Shift collection. And turning a book into a movie is hard enough. Turning a short story into a movie is even harder. 
you know, there's still aspects you want to include and aspects you want to leave out. And then you got to add a lot like creative interpretation to fill in the amount of time you need to make an entire movie. And, you know, Night Shift is actually only one of the only books of Stephen King I've actually read. My mom read me some as a child. I don't remember all of them. But the ones I remember myself reading is Night Shift and It. But like I said, this is a short story that had to be turned into a movie. And, you know, with all that said, there are still a lot of differences and a lot of similarities between the two. However, there are some similarities they kept from the book to the movie. Um, and then, of course, there's a lot of differences they made. Um, there's things they took out, aspects they took out, things they changed, you know. But the truth is, there's still similarities and differences between the book and the movie. So my idea is, like, of course, I'm just going to pick a couple examples um, of differences and similarities, and I'll talk about it and try to, you know, if they're differences, I'll try to explain why I think they were changed and why these changes were made. So one small difference I did notice between the book and the movie is that in the book, the adults um, were killed 12 years ago. Well, in the movie, it was three years ago. And I kind of think they did this, like they changed it from 12 years to three to be, to kind of like show like how new this cult really was. Like they're still figuring out everything. Like in, while so in the book, like I said, it, this happened 12 years ago. The movie, it happened three years ago. So you're still seeing like a fresh new cult that's still figuring out all its logistics and rules and everything. But in the book, they've been in this routine for 12 years to the point that they're even even birthing new children. And these teenagers and children are having babies to make up for the ones that are being sacrificed when they turn 19. Another thing I noticed is that although Malachi and Isaac are mentioned in the book, they're not huge characters in the book like they are in the movie. Malachi is definitely more prominent in the movie than he is in the short story. Um, he is, I feel like he is still Isaac's right-hand man. Um, we know that he is in the movie, but I feel like it's kind of implied that Malachi is Isaac's right-hand man in the book. Um, in fact, as soon as we learn about Malachi, he's actually, um, about to sacrifice himself to he who walks behind the rose because he is of age. But in the movie, um, he is a main character. And one of the things I find interesting is that, as I said earlier when I was talking about horror history, is Malachi's a bully. Like, he's definitely a reflection of bullies and bullying. Like, we see this throughout the entire movie. He bullies Job and Sarah. He bullies Vicky and Bert. And he, in the end, he even bullies Isaac. Like, he enjoys punishing people, he enjoys pushing people around, and he enjoys striking fear in everyone that he meets, and he loves to kill, he enjoys it, and he relishes in it. Like, when you watch him, you're watching a bully at play. Yes, he's a bully extreme, but I think he's still representing and being symbolic of bullying in general, which is something that happens. I mean, I was bullied for most of my life. So, but again, he is an extreme, but the reason why I say he's representing, you know, bullying is because of how much he, he enjoys it. He enjoys pushing these people around. He enjoys striking fear in these people. 
you know, he's dragging Vicky around, you know, the road and cutting her face and having a good time with it. He loves when he drags Job and Sarah to Isaac and is like, they were listening to music and, you know, playing games. You need to punish them. He enjoys punishing people. Like, he really enjoys this. And like I said, in the book, he's not really mentioned. You still kind of get the feeling he was Isaac's right-hand man. But as soon as we meet him, he's being sacrificed to he who walks behind the rose. But in the movie, he's a main character. And he's definitely a representation of a bully, if that makes sense. Isaac is still a preacher, no matter what. So in the movie and in the book, he is a preacher, the one who speaks for he who walks behind the rose um, in the book and in the movie. But we're only introduced to Isaac at the end of the book, but he is still a prophet. Um, he still speaks for he who walks behind the rose, as opposed in the movie where we see him throughout the whole movie and we see him talking and we see him interpreting. He, we see how he believes he is a prophet of he who walks behind the rose. But like I said, in the book, he is still a prophet. We even at one point in the short story, he says, behold, a dream came to me in the night and the Lord did show this all to me. And in my dream, the Lord was a shadow that walked behind the rose. And he spoke to me in the words he used to our older brothers years ago. He is much displeased with the sacrifice. And the Lord did say, have I not given you a place of killing that you might make sacrifice there? And have I not shown you favor? But this man has made a blasphemy within me, and I have completed this sacrifice myself, like the blue man and the false minister who escaped many years ago. So now is the age of favor lowered from 19 plantings and harvestings to 18. Yet be fruitful and multiply as the corn multiplies. That is my favor may be shown to you and be upon you. Another thing I notice is that there is no Job and Sarah in the book. These are characters completely created for the movie. And this kind of makes sense because you can't have all the children be evil and follow Isaac blindly. As we all know from history, there's always a few who do not believe and will rebel. Also, Job and Sarah, I feel like they represent like childlike innocence. Even though most of the children have been corrupted by Isaac, um, these two children stay innocent and do not believe in the words of Isaac and what Isaac's preaching. They do not believe in he who walks behind the rose. And I believe that Isaac keeps them around in the movie because eventually he finds out that Sarah has the gift of sight and he can use this to his advantage. So Job and Sarah are not in the book. Again, it's a short story. It's 30 pages. They were created for the movie. But I think it's because we needed some children because in the book, all the children are evil. All of them are following Isaac blindly. They're all believe in he who walks behind the rose. But in the movie, we needed just a couple of children to kind of remind us that they are still children. You know, in the end, all these children and teenagers are children and, you know, childlike innocence. And Sarah and Job kind of represent that to remind the viewer that, hey, these are all still children in the end, as evil as they are and what they're doing. They are being manipulated by Isaac, who's being manipulated by he who walks behind the rose. But in the end, they are still children. I hope that all makes sense. <laughs> Another aspect in the movie and book that kind of stayed the same is the fact that the children sacrifice themselves to he who walks behind the rose when they turn 19, as well as killing the adults of the town. The difference being that, again, like I said, the book, this event of killing all the adults happened 12 years prior. 
while in the movie, the adults were killed three years earlier. Once the child turns 19, they are considered an adult, thus they must be sacrificed. In the book, the children do um, procreate since it has been 12 years. Um, they do have children and they are giving birth to kind of make up for the people that have been sacrificed. But in the movie, it's only been three years and I guess three years wasn't enough time to kind of start procreating to make up for the ones that are already lost. So I'm just wondering if Maybe they just didn't want to put that in the movie because it's creepy enough to have evil children. But it's kind of even creepier to realize these children who are still children are having babies. It's like babies having babies. They're still they're procreating at very young ages to make up for the ones they are sacrificing to the corn. And the idea of children being like the antagonist is creepy and not unheard of. Um Many movies play on this fear of children. People tend to question, do I want kids? So I think a lot of times when we have creepy kids and evil children in movies, it really is reflecting on this fear of fear of having children. And a lot of it is questions, you know, will I be a good parent? What if my child is bad? You know, do I even want kids? And this movie plays on these fears. Having children is scary enough, but on top of it, you do your best to raise your children to be good people, kind human beings. And when things kind of go sideways, you start to ask yourself, what did I do wrong? I mean, if your children commit crimes, get bad grades, or become abusive people, or et cetera, as a parent, you start to ask yourself, where did I go wrong? What did I not do? You know, so just being a parent in general is filled with questions, like not even to this extreme of what I'm talking about of like, if your kid is basically a bad kid, like where they're committing crimes and, you know, hurting people, you're asking yourself these questions, where did I go wrong? But just in general, as a parent, you're just like, I hope, like, am I a good parent? Am I raising my kid right? Are they going to be a good person? And that all goes back to this fear of having children, because you fear as a parent that you might not be a good enough parent to raise your children, quote, right, you know, to raise them to be good, kind people. And any movie that talks about evil children, creepy children are definitely playing on this fear of like, oh, look what can happen if you have, look what can happen, you know, children can be evil. Do you really want children? Or, you know, look what can happen if you don't do this, your child's going to end up like this. And everything just tumbles into this whole fear of children and fear of having children because like I said as a parent it's scary enough to have kids you always start to question yourself and so this movie along with other movies that deal with evil children are all playing on the fear of having children so I hope that all makes sense last I'd like to talk about the characters of Vicky and Bert because although there are similarities between the book and movie between these two characters there are plenty of differences as well for both the movie and the short story, Bert and Vicky are together. The short story mentions they're married, but in the movie they are not. They're just together. Um, they both are non-believers. Again, I'm not sure if they're supposed to be considered atheists or just don't believe in organized re uh, religion. But in both the book and the movie, they make it known that they are not people of like a specified religion. In the book, they're listening to the radio and they catch a preacher giving a sermon from Gatlin. And Vicky makes it known she's into all, um, she's not into all that, you know, atonement shit. You know, she's not interested in that. Like, she doesn't want to listen to this. And this is from the book. Bert, 
Did anything strike you funny about that radio sermon? Vicky, no, I heard enough of that stuff as a kid to last me forever. I told you about it. Bert, didn't you think he sounded kind of young, that preacher? Vicky, a teenager, maybe. So what? That's what's so monstrous about the whole trip. They like to get a hold of them when their minds are still rubber. They know how to put all the emotional checks and balances in. You should have been to some of the tent meetings my mother and father dragged me to. Some of the ones I was saved at. And then in the movie, um, so, sorry, backtracking. So here we realize that, like, Vicky was raised religious. She's not really interested in it. It actually, she's kind of against it because she was like, this is what they do. They take young minds while they're still pliable, and then they mold it to how they want. In the movie, they're listening to this preacher on the radio, um, not from Gatlin, and they're listening to him and his sermon, and they're kind of, like, picking on him and mocking him and they're, as they're driving down the road. Preacher. Hallelujah. Bert. Whoa. Preacher. There are many mansions in this hell, but there's no room for the fornicator. Bert. Oh, no room. Preacher. No room for the homosexual. Both Vicky and Bert. No, no room. Preacher. No room for the drug abusers. Both. No, no room. Vicky. Amen. Peanut butter and white bread. Bert. There's no room for the college graduate. No room for people who watch public television. Vicky, no room for commitment. Bert, amen. So I just kind of find it interesting that in both the movie and the book, they kind of kept that whole idea, the saying that Vicky and Bert are not religious people. They're, quote, non-believers. And the reason why they end up in Gatlin is actually the same in both the movie and the book. They end up hitting this child. Um, and then when Bert goes to check on the child that he, he ran over, he realized that the child's throat was cut, which was caused before he was hit by the car. So in actuality, um, and even in the movie, Bert even states like he was dead before he walked out in the road. But Bert walks into the cornfield to retrieve the child's luggage because he's looking in the corn. He sees something, realizes it's the luggage and Vicky looks through it while they're back on the road. The only difference, and it's kind of small, is that in the book, they look on the map for the next town to bring the body so they can find someone of authority to let them know about what happened. So like I said, in both the book and movie, they hit the child. They realized his throat was cut, which means he was basically dead before he walked out on the road before they hit him. Bert goes and gets the luggage. They look through the luggage. But in the book, they're looking for the next town. They realize it's Gatlin, so they head there. But in the movie, they stop at a gas station and ask the mechanic and the mechanic tells them to, like, take a right to go to Hemingford and to stay away from Gatlin. But as Bert and Vicky head towards Hemingford, they take that right. The mechanic says they end up in Gatlin no matter what, like supernatural forces that work. But for me, the biggest difference that I noticed is Vicky and Bert's relationship itself. In the movie, they are very much a team. They're very much in love. In the book, they are selfish and they hate each other. Throughout the book, we get glimpses into how much they do not want to be together, how much they basically despise each other. Like, they're married, but they hate each other. So, from the book, Vicky, where are we anyway? Bert, Nebraska. Vicky, yes, Bert, I know we're in Nebraska, Bert, but where the hell are we? Bert, you've got the road atlas. Look it up, or can't you read? Vicky, such wit. This is why we got off the turnpike, so we could look at 300 miles of corn and enjoy the wit and wisdom of Bert Robinson. 
And then later on, once they arrive in Gatlin, Vicky, you bastard, what am I doing with you? Bert, I don't know. I don't know anymore. But the situation can be remedied. And then later on, Bert stops the car to, like, go check out the church, leaving Vicky in the car. And he takes her set of keys so she won't, like, drive off abandoning him because he claims, like, if I let you keep your keys, you're going to, like, drive off without me. Vicky, please, Bert, I'm scared. Bert, you'd wait two minutes and decide that was long enough. Vicky, I wouldn't. Bert, and then you drive off laughing and saying to yourself, that'll teach Bert to cross me when I want something. Hasn't that pretty much been your motto during our married life? That'll teach Bert to cross me. I mean, Bert and Vicky are so unhappy in their marriage that when the children actually take Vicky, Bert doesn't even try to rescue her. He literally just tries to save his own life. He's like, ah, screw her. He runs through the corn thinking he'll make it to the road to freedom, but he ends up actually finding Vicky's body. She's dead, strung up on a cross made of corn, and then Bert ends up one of the victims of He Who Walks Behind the Rose. But it's just that Bert literally just runs off to save himself and doesn't even think twice about possibly saving Vicky or the possibility that she could still be alive. He just leaves her for dead. And that's what happens to him. He ends up dead himself. But it's just the idea that, like, he hates her so much that when she's dragged off by the kids, he's like, eh, oh, well, I'm just going to save my own ass. Like, that's how much they dislike each other in the book. But like I said, in the movie, they're very much happy. They're very much in love. They're driving cross-country to Seattle, I believe, because Bert is now a doctor opening his own practice. And right when we first meet the two, like, you can tell how happy these people are. Like, it's Bert's um, birthday, and Vicky's very excited to celebrate. Vicky, so what did you wish for? Bert, to live happily ever after. Vicky, is that a proposal? Bert, no, it's not. Vicky, Okay, well, I guess I'll give you this anyway. And she hands Bert a present. Come on. Bert, what is it? And he opens it. Oh, that's nice. And that's a lighter. Vicky, turn it over. Bert, I like this. And the lighter's engraved. It says, for Bert Stanton, MD, my darling, love Vicky. And when they run that child over, um, Bert even comforts um, Vicky when she sees the body. Vicky, oh my God. Bert, easy, easy. Come on, take it easy. And he hugs her. Okay, now listen to me. There's something very wrong here. So I want you to go back to the car and wait for me there. Understand? And keep all the doors locked until I get back. And then when Vicky is actually taken by Malachi and the other children, Bert's determined to save her. Like he goes off into the cornfield to save Vicky, not to run away and save his own life. Like, and that's where he actually confronts the children. Um, like saving his own ass never even crossed his mind. Like, when he sees Vicky being taken, he's going to go save her. So, and one of the reasons why, for me, in my opinion, that I believe that they changed this relationship between Bert and Vicky, yes, in both book and movie, they're together, but in the book, they hate each other. They're not happy. In the movie, they are happy and in love. I think it's because the truth is you got to have some likable characters in your movie, like people you root for to survive. Because in the book, Vicky and Bert are so miserable with one another, like, they have so much hatred for one another that you kind of don't care that they die, you're just, like, you're kind of rooting for them to get killed because all you do is hear them bitch and moan about each other, but in the movie, you really want them to survive, you want to see them beat the villain, and you want to see them survive, and I think that's why they made this change, is because in the book, there really is no likable characters, that's the whole story, it's about Vicky and Bert 
getting to Gatlin and then dying. That's the whole story. But in the movie, you know, it's longer. You gotta have some relatable characters. You gotta have characters that, you know, you like and you're rooting for. I think that's why they made that change to have them be happy and in love. But then I started thinking too, is like, even with this change, like this difference in relationship between Vicky and Bert, we get two clear and very different messages being sent to the viewer and the reader. You know, for me, the book is basically reflecting on toxic relationships. Vicky and Bert are not happy. They despise one another. They're toxic to one another. And when in a toxic relationship, all it does is eat you up inside and consume you, kind of as the corn and he who walks behind the rose does to Vicky and Bert in the end of the book. They care more about themselves than one another. They're kind of blind to the chaos that's surrounding them until it's too late and it consumes them. So when you are filled with that much hatred, um, it eats you up inside and consumes you, just as Vicky and Bert, it consumed them. So that's why I think having them hate each other in the book is really reflecting on toxic relationships. You're watching this toxic relationship as it unravels and these people hate each other more and more to the point like it eats them up inside and just consumes them. But symbolically, um, it's he who walks behind the rose and the corn that eats them up and consumes them. So it's a metaphor for this toxic relationship taking over and consuming them, eventually ending them because that's what happens. So he who walks behind the rose and the corn consumes and eats, you know, Bert and Vicky, um, because that's what happens in a toxic relationship is it just starts to consume you and eat away at you. And I think the book is really reflecting on that whole idea using he who walks behind the rose and the corn as a metaphor for this, for toxic relationships. However, in the movie, Vicky and Bert have a strong bond. They're very much in love. And this love is what helps them to survive. You know, he who walks behind the rose is powerful, but not powerful enough to break the bonds of love. And again, this can be seen as stability being a rock. Vicky and Bert have a stable relationship, which keeps them strong, strong enough to fight against he who walks behind the rose and strong enough to fight for one another. They look out for one another. They fight for one another, not leaving each other behind. In the end, they survive because they didn't let anything come between them or push them apart. They stayed together. They stayed bonded because they were in love they wanted to be together. They weren't going to let anything break that. So as the book is reflecting on toxic relationships, because that's what broke them apart, because a toxic relationship eats you up and consumes you because you're filled with so much hatred for one another, that he who walks behind the rose could easily consume Vicky and Bert. But in the movie, because they're so much in love, he who walks behind the rose is powerful, but he wasn't powerful enough to break that bond because they were in love, because they were willing to fight for one another. So I hope that all makes sense. Okay, so I'm going to move on to my reviews. Morbidly Beautiful says, the cinematography of the surrounding cornfields was beautifully disturbing and the score added to the feeling of dread. I always get the creeps in the fall when I go through a corn maze that whispering, crackling sound always makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck. And if a child comes around the corner, help. The Revenant Review says, All these shortcomings having been said, there are still things that this movie does right. 
The music harkens back to the supernatural horrors of the 1970s and helps to create at times a creepy atmosphere. There are effective images that stay with the viewer, such as the kid being struck by the car, the blue man, or Isaac staring through the diner window. Truly, John Franklin as Isaac is alone worth viewing the film as his performance as the child preacher is charismatic and energetic and perfectly embodies what the character needed to be. So overall, this movie is a sinister, atmospheric, and creepy-as-hell horror movie that really gets under your skin. One creepy child in a horror movie is scary enough, but to have a cult of creepy children, a religious cult no less, is downright terrifying. And Isaac is the creepiest of them all. The way he looks into the window of the diner while the adults are being massacred will give you the chills. And Malachi isn't creepy. He's downright vicious and terrifying. This kid has no remorse, no conscience when he kills. He's a downright sociopath and could give two shits about it. This movie, in my opinion, did a good job taking the plot of the short story and expanding on it and exploring deeper into the cult of children. I enjoy the changes that were made, especially with Vicky and Bert's relationship, taking away the toxic relationship aspect within the short story by making them happy and in love shows how strong the power of love can be and how it's not easily broken. If you haven't seen this movie, you should. If it's perfectly into the feel of fall with the miles and miles of corn swaying in the wind, just be careful of cornfields if you decide to try a corn maze this year. If you see a child, run. If you hear someone yelling, Outlander, pray they don't find you. Okay, so I'm going to wrap it up for today. Thank you for joining me here on Simple Sarah's Horror Menagerie. Again, I'm your host, Sarah Sin. Thank you for sticking around as I discuss horror history, psychology, and mental health within horror movies. Hope you enjoy the show. Again, thank you for listening. And I just want to remind everybody that there's a horror movie out there for everyone to enjoy. So thank you.